Good morning. So this morning we continue our Advent series. I forget what it's called. I call it the Mothers of Jesus. I forget what it's officially called in your bulletins. But anyway, you know where I'm going. But before we read our scripture lesson for today, uh, I want to just acknowledge uh, the discomfort that a lot of people have with the larger story within which you find today's story. The book of Joshua is all about Israel's armies reclaiming the land God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in that larger story, as you read the book of Joshua, there are two hard questions whose answers may make you wonder about the God whom we worship. Question one, who dies at the hands of Joshua's army? And number two, who lives and why? Who dies in the book of Joshua? Pretty much everybody. Men, women, children, livestock, no one, nothing is spared. By the time you get to chapter 10, verse 40, we are told, and I quote, Joshua subdued the whole region, including the hill country, the Negev, the western foothills, and the mountain slopes, together with all their kings, he left no survivors. He totally destroyed all who breathed, just as the Lord, the God of Israel, had commanded. I don't have the time to answer the why of all that this morning, except to refer you later, as I will, to another story that demonstrates that the God we worship is not the cruel God, some make him out to be in light of what happens in Joshua, that he is not, as Jim Carrey's character put it in the movie Bruce Almighty, the almighty smiter, ready and eager, just looking for any reason at all to smite everybody in his way. That brings us to the second question that confronts you in the book of Joshua. Who lives and why? Only one person, a woman named Rahab, together with her family. And that is today's story. Joshua chapter 2. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies to Shittim. Go, look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went, but go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she had laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the forts of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and she said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us 
so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites, east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear, and everyone's courage filled because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. So she let them down by a rope through the window, for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. She said to them, go to the hills so the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourselves there three days until their return, and then go on your way. Now the men had said to her, this oath you made us swear will not be binding on us unless when we enter the land, you have tied this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you have brought your father and mother, your brothers and all your family into your house. If any of them go outside your house into the street, their blood will be on their own heads. We will not be responsible. As for those who are in the house with you, their blood will be on our head if a hand is laid on them. But if you tell what we are doing, we will be released from the oath you've made us swear. Agreed, she replied. Let it be as you say. So she sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in her window. When they left, they went into the hills and stayed there three days until the pursuers had searched all along the road and returned without finding them. Then the two men started back. They went down out of the hills, forded the river, and came to Joshua, son of Nun, and told them everything that had happened to them. They said to Joshua, the Lord has surely given the whole land into our hands. All the people are melting in fear because of us. This is the word of the Lord. I wonder, congregation, how many of you have embarrassing relatives? This is a rhetorical question. You don't have to raise your hands. The kind that you just assume the rest of us never meet. I do. The worst of whom is probably my old Uncle John, my late Uncle John, actually, in the Netherlands, who, whenever we shared a meal with him at my grandparents' farm, always ate his meal with his plate on his lap, his chair pushed back, his feet plopped on the table. Disgusting. But now, let's take it a step further. Beyond embarrassing or weird. Suppose you had a relative who is a prostitute. Let's say it's your grandmother or your mother who is or used to be a prostitute. Would you be eager to share that with anyone or would you prefer to keep that a secret? That, I think, is where today's Bible story meets us. Before God ever wrote the gospel according to four men, he wrote it 
through four Old Testament women. The first of these, as you heard last week, was Tamar. The second of these is Rahab. And Rahab was a prostitute. And you wonder, what is a woman like that doing here? In church, so to speak. She's not the kind of lady you'd ever expect to show up, either at a family gathering and certainly not in church, or for that matter, in the Bible. She may not be the kind of lady that you would like in your family or in your church either, but did you know she actually shows up several times? Not only in Joshua, but three different times in the New Testament and in very significant places. You find Rahab in Hebrews 11, that familiar, famous chapter that lists all the great heroes of faith. Not everybody gets their name on that list. Only those individuals who can be held up as a model to others, and Abraham, and Moses, and the like. But a Rahab? Yet there she is. Hebrews 11. Listen, by faith the walls of Jericho fell after the people had marched around them for seven days. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. What in the world? Right? Not Rahab, the Sunday school teacher. Not Rahab, the gems counselor. We could understand that. But Rahab, the prostitute. Then there is the letter of James. The heart of it is the truth that faith without works is dead. That is, if you call yourself a Christian and you don't walk the talk, your faith is probably counterfeit. And if you want to know what I mean, says James, he first points to Abraham, the one the Bible calls the father of all believers. And then right alongside Abraham, he points to Rahab as a prime example Genuine faith. Listen again. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. In the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. This lady, says James, walked the talk. This lady ought to be your model of what faith is all about. Then, and the reason that we are talking about her at all today, she shows up in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1. In the genealogy, the family tree of Jesus. Trying to convince a Jewish audience that Jesus is the Messiah promised from of old. Matthew shows us how Jesus comes from a significant and legitimate Jewish ancestry. And so you get that whole list of names, and right there in the middle, who do you find? Listen, and picking up where I imagine you left off with Tamar last week. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amminadab. Amminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. But what a strange lady to show up in Jesus' family tree in church, isn't she? 
What do we know about her? Well, at least four things. She was a very ancient person, obviously. She lived in the time of Jericho's fall to the army of Israel, which means she lived about 30 or 1,300 years before Jesus was born, about 3,300 years ago, give or take, from today. We know she was a Gentile, a Canaanite, not a Jew. She lived in Jericho, a city populated by people who were enemies of God and of the Jews coming into the land of Canaan to reclaim it. As God had told Abraham in Genesis 15, in the fourth generation, your descendants, the children of Israel, will come back here, the land of Canaan, for the sin of the Amorites, another name for Canaanites, has not yet reached its full measure. But that sin, we can only imagine how bad it was, had now reached its full measure with not ever even a hint of repentance in the 600 years between then and now. And Rahab was one of them, an Amorite. We also know she was a woman living in a male-dominated patriarchal culture. And we know what her profession was, although we don't know why. And there could have been all sorts of reasons for it with which we could empathize. Rahab was a prostitute. Now, there is a text note in many Bibles that suggests that the Hebrew word used here for prostitute may be translated as innkeeper. Oh, yeah, of course. In this case, an inn where only men came and went all night long. Two of the three New Testament texts that name her identify her profession. Clearly, she was a prostitute. The Bible always tells it like it is. So what in the world is this strange lady? Doing in church. Which brings us to the bigger story here. A drama that takes place in three acts. The prologue of the drama began years ago, 40 years earlier, specifically, when God, in keeping his promise, delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt. You know most of the stories, I suspect. The ten plagues, Pharaoh letting the people of Israel go, then changing his mind. Moses leading Israel through the Red Sea safely with Pharaoh's armies in pursuit. Then 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And now in Joshua 2, Act 1 of Rahab's story, Israel is on the banks of the Jordan River, the border of the land promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the end of the journey and the beginning of a new page in their history. Moses is gone Joshua has taken over as leader, and one day he announces, three days from now, you will cross the Jordan here to go in and take possession of the land the Lord your God is giving you for your own. But first, he decides to spy out the land. He sends two men to investigate and explore the invasion route, and especially the first city along the way, Jericho. And eventually, these two men end up at Rahab's place. Now, you may wonder why or how they end up there. And I guess we could speculate about any number of possibilities, some of them reflecting not all that well on the moral character of these men. But the indisputable bottom line, given what ultimately happened, is that God's providence 
still lies behind it all. However or why, humanly speaking, they ended up at Rahab's home, they end up in a place where the presence of two male strangers would normally barely raise an eyebrow. Except it doesn't turn out quite that way. Word of their presence in the city gets around, comes to the king of Jericho, who orders Rahab to turn the men in, who in turn tells the king, these men have blatant lie. Batting her heavy eyelashes at the goons of the king, she says, true, a couple of Jewish boys were here earlier, but when the gate was closed at dark, they left. Go quickly, you can probably catch them. So the king's men rush on, while the spies huddle under piles of flax on the flat roof of Rahab's place of business, where Rahab herself has hidden them. Later that night, she went up to the roof and she said to the spies, guys, we need to talk. She said, I know what you're here for. We all know about your God. Word gets around, you know. We heard about the Red Sea. We've heard about Pharaoh. We've heard about what your God did for you in the wilderness. We've heard about how you conquered all your enemies along the way. All of us are trembling in awe of your God who so obviously and powerfully guides you, who so obviously is God in heaven above and on the earth below. And so we know that God has given you the city. Our hearts are melting and everyone's courage is failing because of the power of your God. And then she made them a deal. I help you, you help me. My life for your life. They agreed. And before leaving, they made her promise to tie a scarlet cord they gave her to the window of her condo, which faced the outside of the wall of the city, so they would recognize where she lived when they returned. Then she let them down after dark, out of a window, and eventually they made their way back safely to Joshua. Acts, Act 2 of her story, which we did not read, begins in Joshua 3, ends in Joshua 6. The spies go back and report to Joshua. Three days later, he proceeds to line everybody up at the Jordan River. Then, in a repeat of the crossing of the Red Sea, God opens up the river. Everyone crosses safely. Soon after, as per God's instructions, the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant that represented God's presence among the people and the armed men of Israel line up and march once around the city, then return to camp. For six days, they did the same thing. And each time they noticed something different at one of the windows in the city walls, this scarlet rope. Though who knows that anyone thought twice about it at the time. Then on day seven, Joshua announces, the time has come for the city to be destroyed. And he reveals the significance of the scarlet rope hanging out the window along the city wall. That seventh day, the whole troop marches around the city seven times. And when the priests blow the trumpets and all the people shout at the top of their lungs, the walls of the city collapse, except where that one condo with the red rope is, and everything is reduced to rubble. Rahab's house is spared, and that's where they find Rahab and her family. The end of Act 2 is that Rahab and her family are brought to the camp of the Israelite and says, Joshua 6, verse 25, 
Joshua spared Rahab, the prostitute, with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the men Joshua had sent the spies to Jericho, and she lives among the Israelites to this day. Then there is Act 3 of Rahab's story, which you will not find in the book of Joshua, but which is told in Matthew 1. Rahab lives there in the camp of the Israelites very comfortably. And a young man, maybe one of the two spies, a young man falls in love with her. His name is Salmon. He marries her. And God blesses him with a child. And that child's name is Boaz. Sounds familiar, right? Boaz, who marries a girl named Ruth. And they have a child whose name is Obed, who had a child named Jesse, who had a child named David, who became king of Israel. Would you believe it? This prostitute, this Amorite prostitute from Jericho became the great-great-grandmother of no less a person than King David, and so, like Tamar, the ancestral mother of the line that produced Jesus of Nazareth. Because of Rahab's lie and her deal with two Jewish spies, Israel one day got its David, and the world and we got its Messiah. There she is in Matthew 1, Rahab, the prostitute, worse, the Canaanite, the Amorite, right in the middle of church. The question is, why? Why did the Spirit of God insist that Rahab be included in the genealogy of Jesus? What is God trying to tell us that is bigger than this story? At least two things mostly by way of reminder, but then who can deny that we need being reminded? The first is this. We learn again that God, for all that he makes a distinction between Israel and the nations, is an inclusive God whose intent and heart's desire is to bless all nations, who takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked but rather that they turn from their ways and live. He gave the Amorites 600 years to repent, and even though they didn't, he chose to include one of them in his family anyway. Our God is a God who loves sinners, who loves the world. Sadly, Israel eventually came to think that God had chosen them because they were special instead of the other way around. They were special only because God had chosen them. I think there's no more classic example of someone who mirrored this mentality than Jonah. Remember him? The prophet called by God to go to the people of Nineveh, the capital of Syria, a city so wicked that God had run out of patience, decided to destroy it, and he commissioned Jonah to tell them so. But Jonah didn't want to go. Ran in the opposite direction, eventually ended up in the belly of a great big fish for three days, all the while praying for rescue until he was belched out on dry land and went and did as God had asked. 
He marched all throughout the city, preaching this simple sermon, 40 more days and Nineveh will be destroyed. It was a sermon Jonah loved to preach. On the one hand, because as an Israelite, he knew who was in and who was out. Who was under grace, who was under judgment. That there was a God of us and there is a God of them. That sermon would have got him large, cheering crowds in Jerusalem with all the people shouting the equivalent of, lock them up! You see, there isn't anything more powerful if you love applause than to play on the hatreds and prejudices of people. Being clear and blunt about who is wrong, who is under judgment, who is outside, is guaranteed to fire up those who know they are right and they are inside. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overturned. It was also a sermon that Jonah hated to preach because what happens in response to perhaps the shortest sermon in history, the king of Nineveh calls all the people of the city together, tears his clothes, calls for a citywide fast, and everybody sits down in ashes and pleads with the Lord to forgive them. They repent of their sin. They admit that they deserve to die, but ask God for forgiveness and pledge to change their ways, and God destroys them anyway. Right? No! Listen, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had promised. Wonderful, right? Not if you ask Jonah, who lost his temper, who yelled at God. I knew this was going to happen. That's why I ran off to Tarshish in the first place. I knew you were sheer grace and mercy, not easily angered, rich in love, ready at the drop of a hat to turn your plans of punishment into a program of forgiveness. And Jonah was right. You see, wherever God sees an opening, wherever God sees an opportunity to forgive, to be gracious, to be compassionate, he seizes it. God repented. Literally, that's what the Hebrew word means. God repented of the destruction he had promised the city of Nineveh. God changed his mind. Does God really do that? Yes, he does. What never changes is God's heart. There, in the depths of his compassionate heart, God is eternal, eternally unchangeable. And the purpose of his heart is to seek and to save the lost, whoever they are, to heal the hurting, whoever they are, to reconcile the alienated, whoever they are, to liberate the captives, wherever they are, and to recreate the world into a kingdom of peace. The God of the Old Testament, of the whole Bible, is the God who cares deeply about lost and sinful people. Sadly, there are still too many Jonas among God's New Testament people, never mind the world outside of the church. Whether the issue is race or gender or sex 
or color or differences of opinion or politics, we have this sinful tendency of drawing lines between people, declaring some to be in, others to be out. And we too find it hard to enlarge our circles. We are more comfortable with our own kind, whatever our own kind may be. We prefer our own songs, our own customs, our own traditions and culture, and particular beliefs and practices. And sometimes we look down our ethnic and religious noses at others with a sense of blood and spiritual superiority. And God reveals himself in Rahab's story as the one who shatters all man-made barriers, whose mission is to destroy that sinful and destructive snare of that outsider-insider mentality into which too many Christians also so easily fall. God reveals himself in Rahab's story, in however small a way, as this all-inclusive God for whom any and all man-made barriers mean nothing. As Paul would write centuries later to Christians in the region of Galatia, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So if you think it's a surprise to see this strange lady, Rahab the prostitute, in church, counted among God's people, just wait until we get to the New Jerusalem and see who's all there from every level of society, race, nation, and language. And won't they be surprised to see you and me? Here's the second thing I think the story teaches us. That God is also the God who, through Rahab's story, speaks so powerfully of the truth of his grace. That all centers around that cord she'd kept tied to her window ever since she helped the Israeli spies escape. You remember the color. It was scarlet, not green, not orange, not blue, not white, not black. Scarlet, red which is not an insignificant detail. Because when the Israelites marched around Jericho and they saw that scarlet rope, you know what they were reminded of. Joshua 5 tells us that on the evening of the 14th day of the month, while camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. Now you remember the Passover and the Passover lamb and how, 40 years earlier, the night before Pharaoh finally let Israel go, the angel of death killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, except in those homes, with the blood of a lamb sprinkled, painted on its doorposts. Such a house was a safe house, a redeemed house. And so the angel of death knew to pass over that house. That scarlet cord that points to the Passover points you and I today to the blood of the Lamb of God. Jesus shed on the cross that we might be freed from the power of sin and death and hell. Rahab's badge of identification 
and that of her family was the scarlet cord hanging from her window. Israel's badge of identification was the blood of the Passover lamb. Our badge of identification as Christians is the blood of Jesus Christ, who came to teach us about the God who loves the world, who is full of mercy, full of grace for all who only believe and repent, and whose mercy and justice finally met once and for all on the cross where the Son of God died the death we deserve. So that all that Paul once wrote to Christians in Rome is forever true, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God, the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because you see, our God is the God of grace beyond measure. Both as a Canaanite and a prostitute, Rahab is pretty much your classic example of an outsider who, humanly speaking, is beyond grace. But here she comes to live among God's people. Here she is in Jesus' family tree, because that, you see, is God's business. God's business, God's heart, is loving sinners who deserve death and give them life. Everyone who ever marches into the kingdom of God and sits at the table of the wedding supper of the Lamb, Hebrew or Canaanite, resident of Jerusalem or of Nineveh, marches in and eats and drinks at God's table, singing with former slave trafficker John Newton, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved even a wretch like me. So if Rahab walked in here this morning, and we knew what we know about her, how comfortable would you be if she sat down right next to you? Then again, of course, you really are sitting right next to her. And so are the people, for that matter, sitting next to you. Simply because we are all unworthy sinners brought into the family of God by the Lord Jesus Christ because of a beautiful scarlet cord, the blood of the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. God of grace, grace beyond measure, convict our hearts that that grace is big enough even for us and convict our hearts that our business, as it is your businesses, is to extend that grace to others as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Willoughby Church Sermon Podcast. The Willoughby Church Podcast Network also has podcasts about discipleship, the Heidelberg Catechism, and even a podcast hosted by some of the youth. You can find out more about the Willoughby Church Podcast Network by going to willoughbychurch.com.